This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. A homemade barrel built to withstand a deadly plunge. Might be the last time you ever see those people. There goes the barrel. There it goes. There it is. A hideous beast that terrorizes West Texas. This thing's killing technique is not like anything anybody's familiar with. And a lantern carried by a courageous teen on a life-saving mission. It's pouring down rain, and time is running out. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Amid the farmlands of rural Iowa sits the quiet community of Boone. Once the railroad center of the Hawkeye State, today the town is home to the Boone County Historical Center. Here, among the taxidermied animals and military regalia, lies one treasured item that pays homage to one of the town's most celebrated residents. It's about 24 inches in height, probably about 4 to 5 inches in width. It's made out of metal and glass. To County Historical Society Director Charles Irwin, this humble 19th century lantern boasts a distinguished past. It would be something that would be very easily overlooked if people did not know a story attached to it. Then all of a sudden this object takes on a life of its own. This gaslight tells an unlikely tale of self-sacrifice and courage in the face of great adversity. So who wielded this lantern? And what death-defying act of heroism did they perform? 1881, Boone, Iowa. 
15-year-old Kate Shelley is living on a hillside farm overlooking the Honey Creek Railroad Bridge. On the evening of July 6th, Kate watches the sky above her home darken as a vicious storm settles in. Kate Shelley anxiously watched as Honey Creek slowly kept rising and rising and rising and eventually became a raging torrent. The daughter of a deceased railroad worker, Kate knows the turbulent waters could wreak havoc on the local railroad bridges. These bridges had a tendency to wash out during times of floods and heavy rains. Shortly after 11 p.m., Kate suddenly hears a deafening crash that pierces the night. Fearing for the worst, the teen grabs her father's railroad lantern, now housed at the Boone County Historical Center, and rushes to Honey Creek to investigate. She sees that the Honey Creek Bridge has collapsed. Kate realizes the fallen bridge could result in catastrophe. Kate knew the railroad train schedule by heart, so she knew at midnight there'd be a passenger train coming. It's known as the Midnight Express. And if it isn't stopped, the train will plunge into the raging waters and countless lives will be lost. Kate decides that she must warn the nearest station, nearly two miles up the tracks in neighboring Mongona. As the lantern guides her way through the stormy night, a half a mile from home, Kate is confronted with a formidable obstacle. The 600-foot-long Des Moines River Bridge. There was no planks to walk on. It just had the rails and the ties. Kate realizes the only way to make her way across in the driving wind and rain is to crawl. The bridge is swaying back and forth because of all the water pushing on it. It's pouring down rain. She's wearing a full-length dress, and time is running out. Kate clutches the lantern as she pulls herself along the treacherous tracks. But then, disaster strikes. The wind picks up, and the lantern blows out. Now the heroic teen must traverse the bridge in complete darkness. As distant lightning illuminates the sky, she slowly inches her way forward. She is continually being gouged by the spikes. Her dress is tearing up. In spite of all of this, Kate Shelley still continues on. Finally, in the distance, Kate spots the Mongona station and realizes she's just feet from the bridge's end. The exhausted teen races to deliver the news. Kate Shelley comes bursting in. She says the bridge over Honey Creek is out. And then she collapses. The station agent recognizes Kate as the daughter of a well-known railroad man and instantly leaps into action. Before the telegraph lines get washed out, that the railroad able to send out one last telegraph message to tell them that the bridge over Honey Creek had been destroyed and all trains must be stopped. The Midnight Express and the lives of as many as 150 passengers on board are saved. In the aftermath of the storm, the town of Boone learns of Kate's bravery and she is proclaimed a hero. And nearly 20 years later, in 1900, as a new route is forged across the Midwest, the city erects the Kate Shelley Bridge in honor of her courageous mission. 
Today, the lantern that helped guide her way that July night in 1881 remains here at the Boone County Historical Center to remind visitors of the undaunted will of a young girl who risked her own life to prevent a tragedy. Dividing the international border between New York State and Ontario, Canada, is a roaring rush of glacial meltwater that twists and churns before crashing nearly 200 feet into the river below. This is Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is beautiful, it's majestic, it's powerful. You got 1.2 million gallons per second of water going over the waterfalls. The waterfall definitely has something about it that can really kind of pull people in. And at the nearby Daredevil Museum, visitors can marvel at the modern machines and homemade contraptions used by a handful of madcap thrill-seekers to take the plunge over the fall's edge. But as Director of Public Relations, Galen Bailey can attest, one 12-foot-long cylinder holds a special distinction among this motley fleet of unlikely vessels. It's a capsule made of foam with a fiberglass mesh coating to it. And inside of it has a steel inner part with uh, air tanks. It looks like a sea monster took a bite out of it. So who challenged the falls in this ravaged apparatus? And did they survive? 1989, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 27-year-old adrenaline junkie Steve Trotter begins planning an unprecedented stunt that he hopes will cement his legacy in Niagara Falls' barreling history. He wanted to be the first to be going over with a female companion. Since the first dive was taken in 1901, no co-ed duo has braved this formidable wall of water, and for good reason. Niagara Falls can really do some damage to a human body. People have landed on rocks and been killed. Sometimes their body comes out in pieces, and sometimes it never comes out. But enduring an over-17-story plunge at 68 miles per hour isn't the only thing prospective daredevils need to worry about. You can survive the drop over the falls, but you can become stuck behind the waterfall, run out of oxygen, and basically suffocate. But even those who survive don't walk away scot-free. Stunts have been outlawed on Niagara Falls since 1960. You can get arrested and it's an expensive fine, too. Trotter, however, is determined to secure his place in the record books and thinks he knows exactly how to do it. That year, he begins construction on an ambitious homemade barrel. Using the steel frames of two household water heaters, he welds together a durable shell, big enough to accommodate two people. Then, he covers this base in bulletproof material and 18 inches of foam, enough, he hopes, to withstand the impact of the sometimes deadly freefall. Inside, Trotter attaches two five-point safety harnesses and installs four oxygen tanks capable of providing air for just over an hour. He was sure that it was strong enough to survive the drop over the falls. Six years and $20,000 later, in 1995, the makeshift contraption is complete. And in June, Trotter makes the over 1,000-mile journey to Niagara Falls with a crew of friends and barreling partner, Lori Martin. At 9 a.m. on June 18th, the team pulls their truck up to the banks of the Niagara River. Trotter and Martin quickly strap themselves into the capsule and make last-minute preparations. 
they put a radio inside the barrel so the crew members can communicate with Steven Schreiner, and they quickly shove it off into the river. The team watches anxiously as the two are swept away in the rapids and rush toward the treacherous abyss. I mean, you have to be pretty nervous because it might be the last time you ever see those people. Seconds later, onlookers watch in awe as the homemade vessel drops over the fall's edge. There goes the barrel. There it goes. There it is. There it goes. There it goes. Look at that. Trotter's barrel lands at the base of the falls, and it looks to be intact. But immediately, it's snagged by a cluster of large rocks just beyond the thunderous deluge. Trotter's friends know they can get out of the barrel. He has a hatch, but he doesn't come out of the barrel. And when crew members try to establish radio contact with Trotter, there's no response. Trotter's friends expect the worst. They might have witnessed the death of their friends. It's June 18, 1995. At the base of Niagara Falls, a homemade barrel is lodged in a cluster of rocks. Inside are 33-year-old Steve Trotter and his friend Lori Martin. The two have attempted to become the first male-female duo to survive the more than 170-foot drop over the falls. But are they alive? As the powerful spray pummels the capsule, a rescue squad arrives on the scene. Racing against the clock, the team works frantically to reach the stranded barrel, aware that Steve Trotter and Lori Martin are equipped with only one hour and 20 minutes of oxygen. They have to get the ropes in position, and then they're basically 10 feet from the edge of the waterfall trying to get to this barrel. But 45 minutes later, there's still no sign of Trotter and Martin. Worse still, the duo's oxygen supply is running dangerously low. If they did survive the fall, they could be on their last breaths. They don't have any air left. And just when it seems all hope is lost, the rescue workers finally reach the barrel and prepare to pop the escape hatch. You kind of expect the worst, that they didn't make it, and they're dead. Carefully, the men remove the lid. They open it up, and they find Stephen Trotter and Lori Martin alive. Steve Trotter and Lori Martin are the first male-female twosome to conquer Niagara Falls in a barrel. But as they are whisked away to the hospital, the question remains, why weren't they able to free themselves from the capsule? The barrel was being hit with water from the falls. So inside the barrel, Trotter thinks that they're stuck behind the falls. If you're stuck behind the falls and you were to open up your barrel, the waterfall will just, it'll crush you. The thing's going to fill with water. You're going to drown. and You'd be killed almost immediately. Unfortunately, Trotter and Martin had no way of knowing they were actually free to escape. A radio that they had actually had bounced around, knocking the batteries out, and they couldn't find the batteries. So they couldn't communicate to anybody and ask, are we outside of the falls? In the wake of this extraordinary stunt, police press charges to send an unequivocal message to potential copycats. Both Trotter and Martin receive a jail sentence and are fined several thousand dollars each. And on June 27th, their battered barrel is salvaged from the river by a crane and put on display at the Daredevil Museum. And here it remains, a testament to the duo that risked it all, despite the consequences, to snare an historic first and live to tell about it. 
Situated on the shores of Lake Michigan is the town of Hammond, Indiana, home to one of the Hoosier State's grisliest institutions, the John Dillinger Museum. Here, over 500 rare artifacts document the life and exploits of one of America's most notorious Depression-era gangsters. We've got everything you could possibly want to see about John Dillinger. We have a 1933 Essex Terraplane Straight 8, which was his favorite car to steal, and some great photo documentation of Dillinger in all of his prime. But according to South Shore Visitors Authority President Spiros Batistados, one small hand-carved object in this vast collection tells of the infamous criminal's most extraordinary stunt. It is roughly six to seven ounces. It's made of wood. Someone might look at it and think it is a child's toy. But what you're looking at is a pretty significant part of gangster history. So what is this tiny whittled object? And what role did it play in a daring scheme perpetrated by America's original public enemy number one? It's 1933. The United States is mired in the depths of the Great Depression. With millions out of work, some desperate citizens turn to crime for financial reward ushering in a new era of outlaw heroes. And perhaps none of these gangsters is more glamorized than 30-year-old bank robber John Dillinger. John Dillinger enjoyed the role of being Robin Hood. There are stories of him giving little kids in the street gold pieces, but history tells us that he was a hardened criminal. By 1934, Dillinger's growing rap sheet includes eight bank heists that have netted him over $100,000. But the prolific bandit's crime spree is about to come to an abrupt end. On January 25th, 10 days after allegedly shooting a police officer during an Indiana bank robbery, Dillinger is arrested while hiding out in Tucson, Arizona. Dillinger's extradited to Indiana to stand trial for that murder. The elusive gangster is locked up in Crown Point Jail, where, awaiting trial, he contemplates his impending fate. John Dillinger was facing the death sentence. The prosecution was ready. They had a very strong case. For Dillinger, there's only one option. He needed to break out of jail. But there's a problem. Crown Point Jail is secured by dozens of heavily armed guards all keeping a keen eye on the institution's high-profile inmate. Crown Point Jail was supposedly escape-proof, so breaking out was going to require some help. So Dillinger obtains the services of a notoriously crooked Chicago attorney named Louis Paquette. Louis Paquette had access to a vast underworld of gangsters and criminals to help him in anything that he wanted to accomplish. On February 19th, just three weeks before the trial, Dillinger meets with his lawyer and lays out a plan. His idea is to have a gun smuggled into the prison so that he can take a hostage and effect an escape. But getting a weapon past security will be no easy feat. The officers were patting down lawyers before a visit, so a conspiracy of this magnitude was going to require some help from someone inside the jail. That help comes from the jail's deputy sheriff, Ernest Blunk, who, for a fee of $2,000, agrees to aid in Dillinger's escape, with one caveat. He refuses to arm the inmate with a loaded weapon. 
So Paquette and his legal team come up with an ingenious alternative. They were going to get a wooden gun made. Something that looked like a real gun. Piquet's office commissions a Chicago woodworker to carve and dye the dummy weapon. And on March 2nd, this whittled piece of wood, now on display at the John Dillinger Museum, is covertly handed off to Ernest Blunk. The next morning, the deputy sheriff passes the prop pistol on to Dillinger himself. Everything is finally in place. But will this audacious plan actually work? 1934. Gangster John Dillinger is languishing behind bars, awaiting trial for murder. If convicted, he will be executed. But the wily crook has an audacious plan. Armed with a fake gun made of wood, he plans to take a hostage and break out of prison. But will the daring scheme actually work? At 9.15 a.m., the jail custodian begins making his rounds through the corridor. Dillinger, exercising outside of his cell, makes his move. Dillinger holds the wooden gun to the custodian and asks the custodian to call for the deputy sheriff who worked in the jail. But what no one realizes is that Deputy Sheriff Ernest Blunk is really Dillinger's accomplice. With the wooden gun trained on Blunk, Dillinger orders the deputy to summon the other prison personnel. Then he works with Ernest Blunk to lock everybody up. With the jail's guards and warden locked in a cell, it seems Dillinger's improbable plan has worked. Legend says he takes his wooden gun, runs it down the cells of the jail and says, look at what I locked all you monkeys up with. And with that, Dillinger and Blunk flee the scene. They steal the sheriff's car and out of the square they drive. The two hightail it towards the Illinois border. Soon after crossing, Dillinger drops Ernest Blunk off on the side of the road and continues on to Chicago, a free man. America's public enemy number one would go on to rob four more banks over the next five months before being shot dead by the FBI on July 22, 1934. But of all his criminal stunts, none surpassed the sheer audacity of the Crown Point jailbreak. And today, this wooden gun remains encased at the John Dillinger Museum, 
a battered vestige of one of the 20th century's most perfect crimes. Situated on the sprawling plains of West Texas is the quiet town of Crosbyton. And it's on this small city's main street that visitors will find the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. Founded in 1998, it contains massive dinosaur specimens and wonders of paleontology. But there's one creature so bizarre and frightening, it even shocks museum founder Joe Taylor. First time I saw this thing, I thought, oh my gosh, there's nothing like this. It's said that this grotesque beast once stalked neighboring communities, terrorizing local farmers. It's black and it's hairless. The ears are huge. The teeth are sharp. And you can see how they could get a hold of an animal's throat. In fact, some believe that this strange animal is more than just unusual. It's proof of the existence of a legendary monster. So what is this creature? And was it responsible for a horrific and unexplained killing spree? West Texas, 2005. One by one, the farmers and ranchers of this quiet rural area report a common but unsettling occurrence. Something is killing their livestock in the middle of the night, and the vicious nature of the attacks has them on edge. This thing's killing technique is not like anything anybody's familiar with. Their livestock are drained of their blood. Hoping to stop whatever is behind these brutal attacks, concerned citizens start armed patrols. Is it a coyote? Is it a dog? Is it a wolf? Nobody knows what's really going on. But they do know that there's some weird creature out there. Because of the unique way it kills its prey, frightened citizens think that it's an unclassified and some say vampire-like beast called the chupacabra. Tales of the chupacabra, Spanish for goat sucker, were first reported in 1995 in Puerto Rico and Mexico. It's said to have earned its name from killing herds of goats, chickens, and cows. It has never been captured. And now some are convinced that it's moved north to Texas to continue its killing spree. August 8, 2008. Deputy Sheriff Brandon Riedel is on routine patrol on the outskirts of DeWitt County. He sees something ahead of him, very unusual. He's going, what in the heck is that? Riedel quickly turns on his dashboard camera. But before long, this strange animal darts off into the brush. But this short video fuels further speculation that this monster is more than just a myth. The next summer in Blanco, Texas, a farmer named Lynn Butler hears chickens being attacked in the middle of the night. He goes outside, but before he can even see what is responsible, the creature disappears. Determined to prevent his chickens from being killed, he baits the area around the coop with a deadly poison. He comes in the next day and hears this strange creature laying on the floor 
and he thought, what the heck is that? Mystified, Butler delivers the corpse to a local taxidermist in hopes of finding the answer. As he examines the creature, he sees that it shares characteristics with a very familiar animal, up to a certain point. He sees it's like a coyote in many similar ways, but hind legs are longer, the teeth are different. Not only that, no coyote has smooth black skin. Whatever it is, it's not like something he's seen before. So, is this bizarre-looking creature the chupacabra? It's 2009. For four years, citizens of West Texas have been terrorized by a mysterious animal that's said to suck the blood out of livestock. But when a local farmer kills a strange, hairless, dog-like creature, people start to wonder, has he killed the beast known as Chupacabra? To solve the mystery, tissue samples are sent to a California university for further analysis. And the genetic testing reveals this bizarre creature's ancestry. The results were it has affinities with coyote and wolf. Researchers believe that it's a hybrid primarily related to the coyote, but linked genetically to a wolf through its maternal line two generations ago. Such hybrids are rare but not unheard of, and scientists determine the case closed. But many West Texas residents remain skeptical. Could this be the very animal seen by Sheriff Brandon Riedel and the one responsible for the rash of livestock fatalities? Or could there be more of these bloodthirsty beasts out there? I've talked to seven people who have seen them up here. There must be a lot of these things. People are afraid, what will this thing do next? And today, the legend of this monster lives on through this strange specimen, leaving visitors to the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum to wonder, will the chupacabra strike again? Springfield, Illinois, once home to one of the country's most celebrated presidents, Abraham Lincoln, whose legacy is preserved here at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Its collection features treasured artifacts like an original copy of the Gettysburg Address and Mary Lincoln's White House China. But among this trove of 19th century mementos, meticulously curated by James Cornelius, is one rusty object that stands out from its pristine surroundings. It is about 15 or 16 inches long with a wooden handle. It's the sort of thing that a fair number of mechanics and workmen would have owned in the old days. But workmen did not wield this seemingly ordinary tool. Instead, it was used by a band of ruthless criminals that preyed upon the Lincoln legacy. So what role did this rusty tool play in a daring plot that shocked the nation? 1876, Chicago, Illinois. Eleven years after the close of the Civil War, counterfeiting is big business. The first national paper currency introduced to fund the war 
is much easier to produce than coins, and criminals are seizing upon the opportunity. Counterfeiting was a pretty easy way to make a lot of money if you had a good engraver, and if you had a good network of people passing the fakes. One notorious Chicago counterfeiting gang is run by Irish mobster Big Jim Kennelly. But this band of outlaws has fallen on hard times. The gang had a really good engraver named Ben Boyd. And Ben Boyd was caught. He was put in prison. And that really put a crimp on the gang's operations. Without the services of Boyd, the gang must embark on a new criminal enterprise. And after a night of drinking at a bar called The Hub, they decide to try their hands at grave robbing. In the 1800s, graves of the wealthy are sometimes targeted by robbers, and the stolen bodies are held for ransom. But Kennelly's crew is looking for a heist that will truly resurrect their fortunes. And that's when they decided that Abraham Lincoln was probably the most valuable buried person in Illinois. Assassinated just 11 years earlier, the president's body rests in a monument just hours away in Springfield, Illinois. Kennelly hopes that stealing the president's body will not only bring him riches, but also free his engraver, Ben Boyd. The mobster plans to demand Boyd's release and $200,000 in gold in exchange for Lincoln's remains. But there's a problem. No one in Kennelly's crew has ever carried out a grave robbery. Then, one night at the hub, their luck changes. The gang met this guy named Louis Sweagles, who said that he had experience with tomb robbing. Sweagles lays out the plan. Three men will break into the tomb while a wagon driver keeps watch. Then, under the cover of darkness, they'll load Lincoln's body onto the vehicle and quietly slip away. Finally, the big night arrives. When the robbers descend upon the monument, only a padlock and an iron door separate them from the president's crypt. With a modest set of tools, they get to work. But the task is not as easy as it appears. The burglars started by trying to cut open the padlock with a hacksaw blade. It was much too small for the job, and it broke. They had to find something bigger and stronger to finish the job. The thieves turned to this chisel, now housed at the Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, and wedge it into the weakened padlock and snap it open. Once inside the vault, the trio discovers a large marble sarcophagus encasing the main coffin. They take that chisel and they wedge off the top of the marble sarcophagus. With the cover partially open, the bandits gaze down upon their prize, the coffin of Abraham Lincoln. Will these brazen criminals pull off one of the most daring heists in our nation's history? In November 1876, a band of Chicago criminals breaks into the tomb of Abraham Lincoln. 
They plan to ransom the president's remains in exchange for an imprisoned convict and thousands of dollars in gold. But will they succeed in stealing the coffin of the 16th president? As the bandits attempt to lift the coffin, they encounter their greatest challenge yet. They realize this thing weighs a ton. So they send Sweagles out to go get the guy with the wagon, tell him to come inside and lend a fourth hand. Sweagles disappears into the dark to find the driver. And suddenly, the night silence is pierced by a gunshot. They don't know what's happened to Sweagles, but they're not going to wait around and find out. They immediately drop their tools and flee the scene, making their way back to Chicago. Unsure of the fate of their accomplice, the thieves regroup at their hangout, the hub. There, they are shocked by the face that greets them. Louis Weagles is there. So he wasn't shot. He wasn't captured by the police. He's there. They think they're scot-free. But their relief is short-lived. Suddenly, the police come in and arrest everyone in the place except Louis Weagles. What the gangsters suddenly realize is that their trusted cohort is not who he said he was. Louis Sweagles was working with the Secret Service all along. They've been tricked. In fact, the police were at the monument the night of the attempted robbery. But the plan fell apart when an officer's gun accidentally went off right after Sweagles exited the tomb, allowing the robbers to escape. Based on the strength of Sweagles' testimony and the tools found at the scene, the would-be grave robbers are convicted and eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison. In the wake of the scandal, Lincoln's body is encased in concrete and placed 10 feet underground. Today, this chisel is on display at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, reminding us of a band of daring outlaws who tried to steal an American treasure and the informer who foiled their plot. Deep in the heart of South Carolina is the old railroad city of Florence. And on a quiet street downtown is the institution dedicated to preserving its heritage, the Florence Museum. Here, crude surgical instruments, Civil War uniforms, and an early steam engine trace the over 150-year history of this Dixieland hub. But for many visitors, one curious mangled artifact stands out from the rest. According to curator Stephen Mott, it's an eerie reminder of the day a nearby town was nearly wiped off the map. Well, it's about six and a half inches at its longest point, and it weighs about one and a half pounds, and it is probably the object of the museum that gets more attention than anything else. So what is this gnarled fragment? And what part did it play in a near-catastrophic accident that brought terror to Main Street America? It's 1958. Political tension between the United States and the Soviet Union is reaching a boiling point. Locked in a frantic arms race, both countries are rapidly developing nuclear weapons, precariously placing the two superpowers on the brink of destruction. 
To prepare for the seemingly unavoidable conflict, the American military routinely conducts simulated combat drills. But one of these missions is about to go horribly wrong. On the afternoon of March 11th, a B-47 bomber takes off from Hunter Air Force Base in Savannah, Georgia, en route to England on one such training run. Along for the ride are three crew members and one extremely sensitive piece of cargo. The military needed to be ready in case of an actual war. And so there was a nuclear bomb on board the plane. Called the MK-6, this 10-foot-long bomb weighs 7,600 pounds and is designed to house a plutonium core capable of creating utter devastation. If the bomb dropped everything within five miles of the impact site would be completely destroyed. But less than an hour into the flight, while the B-47 is flying over South Carolina, a crew member notices something wrong. A flashing control panel light indicates that the nuclear bomb's locking mechanism, which ensures the device's safety during the flight, is not properly engaged. He instructed the navigator, Captain Bruce Kolka, to go and investigate the situation. Captain Kolka heads back to the aircraft's bomb bay to figure out what could be causing the malfunction. Because he wasn't too much taller than the bomb, uh, it was very hard for him to have a line of sight anywhere to look around for where the locking mechanism might be. In an attempt to get a better look, Kalka decides to hoist himself up onto the deadly detonator. As he leaned forward onto the bomb, he pulled something to stabilize himself. It's the bomb's emergency release handle. In an instant, the massive nuke drops to the plane floor, landing squarely on top of the bomb bay doors. Seconds later, the bomb bay doors burst open and the bomb fell from the plane. It seems Captain Bruce Kulka has just dropped a nuclear bomb on South Carolina. It's March 11th, 1958. United States Air Force Captain Bruce Kulka has just made an inconceivable mistake. Flying at 15,000 feet over the East Coast in a B-47, he has accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb on South Carolina. Mortified, Captain Kulka scrambles back to alert his fellow airmen. So their next step was to radio back to Hunter Air Force Base. As the B-47 is diverted back to Savannah, authorities in Florence County, South Carolina, are inundated with reports about a massive explosion. Several calls started coming in to the police from people who were in the city of Florence. They described seeing two plumes of smoke about six miles away in a rural town called Mars Bluff. Soon, the media picks up on the explosive story, sending Florence County residents into a panicked frenzy. Anyone heard the term atomic bomb, first thing that they think of would be you know, the incredible devastation that they associated with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There was a lot of fear that there was a potential for uh, radiological contamination. 
But when news outlets finally release images from the bomb's impact site in Mars Bluff, local citizens are confounded. There seem to be no signs of nuclear devastation. In fact, the damage seems confined to a single property where the bomb has created a 75-foot-wide crater in the Earth and knocked a small house off its foundation. The yard has also been sprayed with tiny bomb fragments, just like this one, on display at the Florence Museum. Astonishingly, the blast has caused only a handful of minor injuries, but no one has been killed. Mars Bluff seems to have been spared. But how? The policy of the Air Force at the time was that the actual nuclear core of the bomb had to be on the plane, but was not inserted into the bomb unless it became necessary uh, to arm the weapon. That core was not loaded into the bomb that fell uh, on Mars Bluff. In the wake of the extraordinary blast, authorities conduct a thorough cleanup of the area and eventually the government compensates the victims for their hardships. But for some Mars Bluff residents, the memories of March 11, 1958, continue to linger. Yeah, it's been 54 years since the event, but it still does live on in the minds of the people who experienced it. And today at the Florence Museum, this bomb fragment remains on display a mangled relic from a tragic accident that brought the Cold War to America's doorstep. From a nuclear bomb to a nocturnal killer, an unlikely heroine, and an unlawful daredevil. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.